You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn J-Town. We are currently in a series on prayer, exploring the possibility of prayer in the life of the believer. Let's stand together if you're able in honor of reading God's Word. We're in Matthew 23, and this morning we are uh, working verses 1 through 12. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries. Phylacteries, that's really hard to kind of say. I've been struggling with that all morning. And lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You're not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So I've added a little phrase to our normal kind of liturgy of this is the word. And I've added this little phrase because I've become a a big fan of the Next Right Thing podcast by Emily Freeman, and my wife and I enjoyed kind of her Advent collection uh, this, uh, this Christmas. And one of the things that she added to the ending of the Word of the God is this little phrase, it is absolutely true and given to you in love. And I would like to add that to our liturgical movement. And the reason why is because I need to be reminded, and I'm assuming you need to be reminded, that every time we gather together and we read the, from this book, it is absolutely true. And you can build your life upon this truth. And in a time and an age where everything seems to be relative, what is spoken from here, you can center and align your life to it. It is absolutely true. And it is given to you in love. And so that's a, a weekly reminder that the, the, the posture of God the Father toward you is not to give his word to beat you down or to condemn you, but to give you life. And he's leaning in with compassion and kindness, and grace, and this is given to you in love. And so, if you guys are good with this, this is how we'll do it, all right? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks for your word. We pray that you would help us to align our lives to it, and that you would help us to believe that it truly is given to us in love. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So what is one of the things that you dislike to do in the mornings? For some of us, it's just waking up, amen? like, oh, this is miserable. <laughs> Others of us, um, I mean, I'm sure there's several reasons, and 
things that we can put down here. I'm not giving an exhaustive list. I'm just giving a couple here. And this is my second one. For some of us, it's looking into the mirror. And why is looking into the mirror something of a painful, difficult process for anyone that's over 30? Amen? Uh, if you're a teenager in your 20s, ah, the mirror experience can be somewhat pleasant still, you know? Um, but the reason why we hate looking into a mirror is because the mirror is truthful. It tells the truth about what we really look like. We can have a an illusion of what we think we look like, right? Uh, depending on your temperamental wiring, that can be a good illusion or that can be a really horrible illusion, whatever it is. Like you can, you can say, I think I look like this, but then you get into the mirror and you're going, oh no, wow, man, I I'm actually am going bald. I thought I had a full head of hair, but I don't think so. Wow, that is, those wrinkles in that eye are getting worse than I thought they were. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the mirror as a way of telling truth that we really don't like to see um, or even sometimes here. And what I'm wanting to do this morning is that this, this, actually this whole chapter, chapter 23, so today and next week, I'm asking us to use the Word of God as a mirror because that's what this passage is for. Yes, sometimes we, uh, we use the Word of God, if you want to stay with the M words, as medicine, and it needs to be. There, there are times we we read and hear the Word of God to be something that brings healing, to bring comfort, to bring uh, perseverance in a very difficult season. Like we need the medicine of the Word, so to speak. And at the same time, we also need the Word to be a mirror to show us things that, um, that make us uncomfortable, to show us things about ourselves that we really don't want to know and we especially don't want others to know. But remember, right, remember what we said at the very beginning. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. And look, look, it's given to you in love. So what we'll see in chapter 23 is, especially next week, this week's a little lighter. Next week's pretty hard. But what Jesus says here is really hard and harsh. It is. It can feel that. It's like, man, what, what happened to this compassionate, gracious Jesus? Because these words don't feel very compassionate and gracious. They feel pretty hard and in someone's face because the words that he's sp sp speaking here is not just into like a, a closet or with just a few people. No, this is not only the crowds and the disciples, but all the religious leaders are surrounding and listening to this also. He's in the, the temple when he's sharing these words. This is the very last week. He's already in, in Jerusalem. And so we gotta, we gotta remember, this is coming on the end of three and a half years of pleading with the religious leaders of calling them to repentance, of being patient with them, saying, come to me. I'm the one you've prayed for, you've longed for, you've looked for. Open your heart and hear what I have to say to you. And over and over and over, we see in the gospel of Matthew where the religious leaders chose to harden their heart. Instead of having this posture toward Jesus and his word, they consistently had this posture toward it. And we know, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything for most of us. We know at the end of this week of Jesus' life, the religious leaders murder him. They kill him. So this is three and a half years of pleading and pleading, and now he's at at the end and saying, hey, here's truth. And what we have a tendency to do here, because we all have a negative connotation toward these religious leaders. If you, 
grew up in church in any way, and if you didn't grow up in church, when you kind of hear Pharisees or scribes, you don't have a positive idea with them. You have a very negative idea. And so when we come to a chapter like this, the tendency in all of us is to say, oh yeah, that's them. It's to point outward and not inward. It's to point out and say, that's who they are, not who I am. And all I'm wanting to invite us into all these next two weeks is that we would take the word of God and allow it to be a mirror, or another way of saying this is found in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, where it says this, the wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Will we allow Jesus to wound us? Because he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is a friend who laid down his life for you He is a friend who has perfect love toward you, which casts out any fear, which allows and empowers us to bring that mirror up and say, okay, wound me. Help me see things that maybe I don't want to see. So what is kind of the the beef, so to speak, that Jesus has with this group of people? Well, we we see all this kind of coming to fruition here, starting in verse 1, when Jesus says this, And Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, and he said this, the scribes and Pharisees, and just so that we kind of know what he's referring to, scribes would be people that are kind of more uh, religiously trained in the sense of like they went to a school to be religiously trained to know how to interpret the law and speak the law. Pharisees would be more lay people that also were trained too, but they didn't have the kind of theological education that the scribes would have, all right? So that's kind of the, the, the deal, you know, the, the separation between the two. But they're, you know, we use kind of language of just the religious leaders in this time, all right? So the scribes and Pharisees are seated in, their, in the chair of Moses, which is just basically a, a representation of, of the teaching authority of this group of people that are responsible for interpreting and teaching the law of God to, uh, to others, And so look what he says here in verse three. So therefore, because of they sit in the chair of Moses, therefore do whatever they tell you, right? And observe it, but do not do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. And so in essence, Jesus is saying, look, the the words that they are speaking are the very words of God because the law of God that they're talking about is the first five books of the Old Testament from Genesis to Deuteronomy. So those are the very words of God. So look, do what they are saying, but do not do what they do. Do not pay attention to how they live because they do not practice what they say. And then what seems to happen here in in these next few verses is, and especially within the rest of the chapter, is Jesus begins to give examples of this, of not doing what they say, not practicing what they're teaching. And so there's a couple here that I think he highlights highlights from verses four to seven. The first one is this, there in verse 4, it shows that this group of religious leaders gave absolutely no concern for how they're teaching what it was doing to regular normal people. They didn't care. I mean, look what he says here in verse 4. This group of religious leaders, they tie up heavy loads that are, that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to even lift a finger to move them. So the the manner and the way in which they are teaching the very law of God is done in such a way that brings harm. doesn't help them. It it hurts them. It's done in such a way to where it kind of 
keeps people down and they blindly lift themselves up. I mean, if you go to Psalm 119 and see this long psalm, it's a, it's a celebration of the very law of God that gives life. It, it's beautiful. It's like, you know, honey. I mean, it's, it's such a, you know, the whole psalm is a beautiful metaphor of, of how wonderful the law of God is. But the way and the manner in which these religious leaders are teaching it, it brought death. And the problem is, is they didn't even care. They weren't even willing to lift a finger to help with the heavy burden that they're putting on people's shoulders. Frederick Bruner says this in his commentary on verse four. He says this, the focus of the second half of the sentence's arrangement is not only on the making of heavy loads or the placing of these loads on people's backs. It's also the mercilessness that will not help carry those loads this means at least the righteous demands of God's law were not sufficiently surrounded by the mercies of God's grace in the teacher's ministries. Unwillingness to move a finger pictures a cold arrogance. A spirit of this is your responsibility and not ours. I mean, we see this whole uh, piece here in verse four played out in almost like, verbatim in chapter 27, verses three through four, where Judas comes and, and repents of betraying Jesus. And look at this conversation that he has with this very group of people. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that, that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned with 30 pieces of coins to the chief priests and the elders, the very people that Jesus is talking about here. And Judas says this, I have sinned for I betrayed innocent blood. And look how they responded. What is that to us? That's your responsibility. So one of the ways that, they, that Jesus is highlighting here of them not practicing what they are saying is they, there's no concern whatsoever how the, the manner in which they're speaking the very law of God that is to bring life, what it does to normal, regular people. They're okay with it bringing death, so to speak, and they're unwilling to move anything or lift a finger to help. The second one is this. There's a, an over-concern for their appearance, their, their uh, desire to impress people, their reputation, their status. Look what Jesus says in verse 5. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries, you know, the, the PH word, amen, and lengthen their tassels. And I know it's like, say, what in the world are we talking about there when he talks about the PH word and tassels here? Well, the, the phylacteries were these kind of boxes that in this time that they would wear, these, these religious leaders, and they would put like um, uh, little parchments of paper that would have um, Bible verses basically on there that they get out of the wall. And they would put them in these little boxes. One would be on their forehead to kind of you know, submit their mind to the very word of God. And the other one would be kind of on their arm here so that's close to their heart. And they would wear these and use these in the three, three times of prayer during a day. And so when he talks about the enlarging of these, Jesus is either talking about these boxes are big. So they're, they're making them bigger so that they can put more passages in there. And wow, those guys look impressive. Look how many pieces of parchment paper that has the word of God. It's in their big old box, right? Or, or they, they wear them longer than the prescribed times. They're only supposed to put these on during the day, uh, times of prayer. So maybe they're wearing them throughout the day. So that's one. The other one is just these tassels that were 
part of their, their wardrobe and these tassels would, would, would be at the very end of their kind of robe that would be like this. And, and if they're making them longer, all they're trying to do there is to kind of like uh, have people pay attention to it, to, to increase their link with an obvious way uh, for people to kind of pay attention to their, their piety, how serious and, and devout they are to the commands of God. And all of this was done in order to impress people. I want people to, to see how serious I am about the Bible and the commands of God. So there's this over-concern to, to, of appearance and impression and make sure people think, wow, look how you know, godly, so to speak, they are by the big boxes that they wear on their forehead or on their arms. And he goes on and says in verse 6 too, they, they have an over-concern for status and what people say about them. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called rabbi by people. The opportunities for them, this religious group, to enjoy people's adulations are seen both in normal life, going to the marketplace, going to Kroger, Walmart, you know, running to dinner, dropping by Chick-fil-A, whatever. They love it when people, you know, talk to them, speak to them, call them certain names, especially within the context of worship. So this is just two examples. I mean, the, the list goes on as we dive into the rest of chapter 23 of, of this warning. Don't practice what they teach. There's, a, there's an under-concern for how their, their, their law of God is, is landing on people, and they don't care at all. They're, they don't want to lift a finger to help carry this heavy load. They're, there's an over-concern for reputation and status and impression and, and what people say about them. And so these are just two examples, and there's more coming later on in chapter 23. And so just want to stop here just for a few minutes and, uh, and allow the, the mirror of God's Word to come and, and play here. Instead of us thinking that that is them, let's ask the question, where is this in all of us? Let's put the mirror before our own lives. Instead of thinking about, oh, yeah, I know a former pastor, man, he fits this bill. Oh yeah, I've said in our teaching that blah, 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 blah. No, no, let's just stop for a second and put the mirror up. And say, where, where is this in me? You see, what Jesus is attacking here, and we'll see this even in the rest of this chapter, as one commentator says, is this attitude that is a religion of externals, a, a matter of ever more detailed attention to rules and regulations while failing to discern God's priorities, his desires, what his wants are. He goes on to say the hypocrisy, which is alleged, is not so much a conscience insincerity as a distorted perspective, which makes them think that they're doing the will of God when they are missing the main point. So hear what this commentator is saying here and hear what Jesus is getting after. Jesus is not against the form or, or a language that I would use. He's not condemning the practice. And in fact, what I, what I would say is one of the things I want us to grow in as a church is for us to begin to more and more engage in the practices of, of growth and maturity. So you're rolling in here every single Sunday morning is a practice. It's a, uh, 
a form. If you chose to pray with us last Wednesday in our, our day of prayer and you picked a 15-minute slot or a 30-minute slot, that's a practice. That is a form. If you read your Bible, if you do silence and solitude, if you fast, if you serve, whatever it is, that's a practice and that is a form. And I would put before you that it's, it's, it's absolutely important for us to engage in form and in practice for us to mature and grow. But here's the warning that Jesus is giving to us and we need to hear over and over. We are not to be content with just doing the form. Because what is, what is God after? We know this answer, but I just want to hear it again. What is he after? He's not after the form. That is not an end in itself. He's after your heart. What is going on inside of you? What is, how are we paying attention to what's, what's going on inside of here? We're not just checking off the box that I'm satisfied with going through the motions but I'm, I'm using these means, these forms, practices, whatever you want to call them, as a way of seeing what is going on in here. Because we, we run into people like this all the time. We do. Where we would, we would say, man, I would line up convictionally, almost everywhere where this individual is. Man, I, every one of us has somebody in mind right now, probably. Man, I would line up, man, where this guy's conviction is or this woman's conviction is, where, where she lines up biblically. Man, I am all on board with that. But whenever we leave an encounter with them, they just feel really arrogant. They feel very prideful. They feel very self-righteous. Mirror. If we leave those encounters and we walk away, whether we say this verbally or not, and we think, man, thank God I'm not like that. We're doing exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Instead, what we want to do is walk away from those encounters and go, God, help me to see where, I, where I'm like that. That I can have all my confessional language all lined up, but man, the experience of me feels arrogant, self-righteous, and prideful. Is my doing, is my form cultivating and growing a merciful heart or a prideful heart? Is my doing helping my presence be experienced as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? Is my doing helping me see the dissonance that is always there between what I say I believe and how I live? All of us have this, this gap. Do, do I see that without it crushing me? And at the same time, being at peace with it. Is my doing helping me see my sin quicker or the sins of others quicker? If not, then we may be missing the point also. 
One commentator says it like this. These examples of vanity from clothes through chairs to titles can hit home and teach us something of Jesus' diagnosis of religious sickness. Israel's religion like ours was occasionally showtime. And God was and is sometimes used for personal advancement. The church that listens to this, this indictment with good faith will remove from her midst the showy and the pretentious. Disciples who listen with good faith will question cultures and their own carnal megalomania, which basically is a delusion of your own importance. Successism and title hungry. There must be a better way. And there is. It's the way of humility. I mean, look what Jesus says here in verse 12. It's almost a summation of this little section here. It's kind of the point that Jesus is trying to get after when he says this, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, we know this, guys. Anything that you repeat over and over must be really, really important. And if you've been kind of traveling with us through the book of Matthew, or even if you haven't, you're, if you're somewhat familiar with the teachings of Jesus, you know that this is something he says over and over and over. He teaches and shows that this is the, capital T, character that marks someone as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are humble. It is a, a virtue that you pursue and a way of life that you embrace. Humility is the opposite of making life all about me. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. In fact, humility is thinking of yourself less. Dr. Martin Luther King on February 4th, 1968, delivered his last sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, and it was entitled The Drum Major Instinct. And he discussed this, this idea of the quality of humility by telling the story of the life of Jesus. And I'm just kind of giving you an abbreviated version of this because I think it really hits the point of what Jesus is obviously after and the character he wants his followers of Jesus Christ to, to live out. He says this, I know a man, and he just went about serving. He didn't have much. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never went more than 200 miles from where he was born. He did none of the usual things that the world would associate with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. And I'm sure he's reading this a way lot better than I am. And I'm sure the crowd is doing a lot better of going back and forth, right? Amen. So uh, just... Bear with me and the way I'm butchering this, and then you guys can go back and forth if you want to. But here we go. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. They called him a rabble, uh, rabble riser. They called him a troublemaker. They said he was an agitator. He practiced civil disobedience. He broke injunctions. And so he was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. And the irony of it all is that his friends turned him over to them. One of his closest friends denied him. Another of his friends turned him over to his enemies. And while he was dying, the people who killed him gambled for his clothing, the only possession that he had in the world. And when he was dead, he was buried in a borrowed tomb to the pity of a friend. And then he goes on and says this, think about this. 
Jesus, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, chose, chose this to cover himself in the shroud of humility. It must be important. And I would say for most of us in this room, no matter if you're a Christian or not Christian, you would agree with that. That there's something about humility that, that you're drawn to and there's something about arrogance that, that you want to step back from. So it's, it's not necessarily do we, do we confessionally agree that humility is really, really important. I think what's hard for us is that we struggle to really live this. We struggle to really believe that the way of humility as Jesus has taught us and shown us is the way to real, lasting, beautiful, and the good life. It is hard to be a listener instead of the one being listened to. Can we just honestly say that? Can we let the mirror come before us? That it's hard to be a listener instead of the one being listened to. It is hard to give your attention to others rather than seeking to be the center of attention. That's not just a middle school problem. That's an adult problem. It's hard to be the one who is blessing others rather than being the one seeking the blessing. So why, why, why is this so hard? Even though we know it's true and we would kind of agree with that, why is it so hard for us to live this out? Well, I'll give you one reason, not the only reason, but one reason. And that is this, is we have trouble holding these two equal truths and living out of these two equal truths. The first one is this, you're not that important. I mean, even saying that, I feel bad, right? I'm saying it to myself, right? But you're not. You're not that important. Your name will be forgotten in probably two generations, maybe less than that. You are not that important. And at the same time, if you are in Christ, your name is written in heaven. These two truths are equal and need to be held together. You're not that important. You're not that important. And, and your name, Lyle, that's my name, Lyle, right? Your name is written in heaven. One author says this, it's not on the screen. If there is not a list of names in eternity, we are burdened with making our own personal name day after day after day. Either we are made by another or we must be self-made. If you have no foundational significance, you must constantly attempt to self-signify and self-validate. Everyone is then, listen, a competitor and a rival. So if you're a competitor and a rival to my importance, right, then guess what? I will not be suspicious of titles. That's what Jesus is getting after in verses 8 and 9 when we 
When he says, don't let anybody call you rabbi. Don't let anybody call you teacher. Don't let anybody call you father. It's like, I mean, it's, it was, I, I'm still wrestling with this a little bit, honestly, because I'm going, man, should I introduce myself as one of the pastors? Should I? Or should I get up every Sunday and say, hey, my name is Lyle. I, I'm one of the servants here. Well, I would say this, that if I'm not paying attention to what that title can do in me, then maybe I need to stop saying, hey, I'm one of the pastors. Because if I'm using that title, and I think this is what Jesus is getting after here when he says, don't call, you know, don't be called rabbi, blah, blah, blah. I think what he's getting after here is if you use that title in order for yourself to feel superior and separate, that's the danger. That's the danger. And if I come up here and say, hey, my name is Lyle, I'm one of the pastors here, so that I can, whether I would say this, right, but whether I can kind of feel in my heart I'm kind of above you, like, I made it, you guys hopefully can catch up with me, right? Or if I'm doing it to separate you, that's, that's the danger. And look, look, if I've got to make myself important, then you're my rival. You're my competitor. So not only will I not be suspicious of titles, right? Because titles in and of themselves are not evil. It's what they can do in you. But I will not serve you. And if I do serve you, then I'm serving you to serve myself. Because you're a rival. You're a competitor. You see what I'm saying, guys? You following this? The reason why humility is so hard is not just because we're sinners. Yes, yes, that's at play, Right? I'm just trying to get a little specific of what it is. It's that we don't believe these two equal truths. That you're not important. And at the same time, if you're in Christ, your name is written in heaven. And so here, like, this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we, we rehearse and recite and we sing about and we remind ourselves of. It says this, your importance is given and bestowed upon you. Just sit with that little phrase just for a, a few seconds. Your importance is given and bestowed upon you, which is an unbreakable covenant between you and God. You are declared important. You cannot declare yourself important. To attempt is, is delusional behavior. When Jesus tells you that your Name is written in heaven. Look it up this afternoon, Luke 10, verse 20. When Isaiah the prophet tells you that God has branded you on the palms of his hands, look it up, Isaiah 49, 16. Listen to what this says. They have saved you tens of thousands of dollars in self-promotion fees and tap dancing lessons, which I don't know if I want to do tap dancing lessons nor with you, but just slide something in there and makes you feel good about yourself, right? And, and therapy for your negative self-image. The problem we try so hard to solve is already completely solved. And most people don't know about it. The better way is humility, to humble ourselves before God first and before one another. And the key for this to be a growing reality in your life is to believe the truth that, first of all, you're not that important. 
And at the same time, if you're in Christ, your name, your personal name, is written in heaven. Which means I'm already important. So I can humble myself before you. Listen before I speak. Pay attention instead of seeking attention. Be a blessing instead of striving after a blessing. So if you're here this morning and you say you're not a Christian, then say thankful to have you here. I just want to encourage you. And um, I just encourage you, maybe implore is a better word, to really give your life to Christ. This doesn't happen by you walking out of here saying, oh, I'm going to be more of a humble person. That's just a train wreck waiting to happen. But give your life to Christ. And the Spirit of God comes and changes your heart from heart of stone to heart of flesh, making it moldable and and formable and gives you a, a desire, a new wants to where this can become a reality in you. But it first starts with receiving Christ. If you're a Christian here, then my encouragement to you is what I said at the very beginning. Take this passage and put a mirror Like, use it as a mirror. Allow Jesus to be a fruit who wounds. And ask him, say, God, help me to see where I'm trying to manage my own image. Help me to see how I'm trying to make people think I'm impressive. Help me to see how I'm trying to make people think I've got it all together and my family's all, you know, wonderful and awesome. Help me to see ways that I'm even deceiving myself. And help me to pursue a life of humility, humbleness before him and before one another. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.